You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Have your Bibles. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. You can go ahead and go there. Now, our middle son, if you don't know, his name is Declan, and he had a birthday this past Tuesday, and he turned five years old. Yay, five years old. So when Corey and I finally settled on the name Declan for his first name, we still had a lot of arguments about what his middle name was going to be. We could not decide on a middle name. I knew what I wanted his middle name to be. Corey didn't like that middle name. Spoiler alert, I won. Um, I, got the, I got the middle name. But as a placeholder, what I did was I started calling him Declan the Destroyer. Right? <laughs> it's a funny name, and I thought that it would fit his personality. Unfortunately, it fits him all too well. It fits him all too well. It's almost as if giving him that nickname, he took on the characteristics of one who would be called the destroyer. Usually if something's in the house and it breaks, it's Declan's fault. Corey and I joke that it's a good thing he gets hand-me-downs from Levi because he can't have nice things. He just can't have nice things. He destroys them all. Now, I know this is silly, but sometimes I like to think that me giving him the name Declan the Destroyer prophesied his personality. At times, I wish I would have called him something different, like Declan the Mild, or Declan the Obedient, or Declan the Perfect. Now, now, as much as I would like to take credit for the fact that I got to name him Declan the Destroyer and he took on that personality, I know that's not really how things work, right? God is the author of life. God is the one who gets to determine kids and their personalities and all that stuff. He is the creator, and through his divine providence, he bestowed upon us this Declan, the destroyer. So what does this have to do with this morning's message? Well, even though I don't have the power or the insight to prophesy what Declan would be like while he was still in mommy's tummy, God does. God has the providence, he has the, pro- the power, the insight to look into the future and see what's going to happen. And then sometimes he reveals it to his people. In fact, the text that we are going to look at this morning, God used this guy, Isaiah, to prophesy Jesus' coming, to prophesy his life, to prophesy his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this prophecy isn't written just a few years before Jesus comes. It's not written during Mary's pregnancy with Jesus. It's written some 700 years before, 700 years before Jesus came. God outlined in the text we're going to look at today what Jesus, his servant, would look like, how he would behave, what his people should expect, how he would be exalted, and ultimately how he would suffer. Why would God prophesy Jesus' coming? Why did God need to send Jesus? What's the point of all of this? Because one of the most important questions that we can ask is how can a sinful wicked, rebellious man be reconciled to a holy, perfect, righteous, and just God? That's the most important question we can ask. Well, the answer to that question is found in Jesus, God's suffering servant. So let's start with a word of prayer, and we'll begin. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come before you, ultimately. Lord, use me as a servant. Speak through me. Illuminate your scripture as we're going through it, Lord, so that it can change us 
It could change our hearts. It could change our minds. It could change our desires, Lord, that we would be focused on you and you alone. And we can be grateful for Jesus, that our hearts are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Again, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. And we thank you through Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So Isaiah chapter chapter 52, verse 1, or verse 13 through 15. Here's what we read. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what they had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. So right here in the first few verses of our scripture this morning, we see that God's servant is predicted. The book of Isaiah has four servant songs throughout, throughout it. That's the coming of God's servant, Jesus. They each hone in on who, what, when, where, and how the Savior would come into the world. This is the last one of those servant songs. Here God is predicting his servant's coming. Not only that, but he is declaring that his servant is going to be successful. Now we each can all hope and dream that we are going to do great things. We can aspire to be successful. We can pray that things are going to get better, that we're going to do well in this life. But only God, the creator of heaven and earth, can declare, can promise, and demand that things are going to be one way or another. And here, he determines and he declares that his servant is going to be successful. Now, up to this point, we don't know what that success is going to look like. We don't know how success is going to be obtained. But we know that it's going to happen. God's servant is going to be successful because he is serving God. He is obedient and he loves God. And because of that love and that obedience, God is going to exalt him. In the end, regardless of what happens, the servant is going to be lifted high. He is going to be made much of. He is going to be upheld and exalted by God's own hand. Now that doesn't mean that his life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that following God for him is going to be painless. In fact, in the next sections, we are going to see that God's servant, that this exaltation comes through his humiliation, through his death. Part of that humiliation comes through some sort of disfigurement. In verse 14, we see that he is going to be so disfigured that he is appalling to look at. His disfigurement is going to cause him to not look like a human now, in my past, I used to watch boxing and mixed martial arts. I used to enjoy watching people clobber each other. I still do some. But I used to really enjoy it. And I remember watching some of these fights. And at the end of the fight, the people being so disfigured that you couldn't even tell who fought who. Their faces are swollen, their teeth are knocked out, their ears are all bleeding, their faces all puffy. And that's what I think about when I think about this disfigurement of this suffering servant that he is going to be disfigured, not resembling a human being, that he's going to be beaten and bloody and bruised. He's going to be horrendous, hideous, and horrifying, completely unrecognizable. Yet despite 
being appalling to the people, this servant is going to do something amazing. He's going to please the Father. Right? And one of the ways that he's going to please the Father is he's going to sprinkle the nations. That's a weird phrase. What does this mean, sprinkle the nations? We aren't told what he's going to sprinkle the nations with, but we can infer through the Old Testament background and what's being said here that this word sprinkle is used in the context of blood sacrifices in the temple and in the tabernacle. And what happens in the temple and the tabernacle is the priests were sprinkling blood on the altar to cover the sins of the nation, to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. They were making an offering to God. They were making atonement for the sins. Now, this was limited to the Israelites and those who converted to Judaism. But we see here that that this sprinkling of the servant isn't going to be limited to just the Jewish people, but to who? The many nations, to all the nations. People from all tribes, all tongues, all nations will be cleansed by the power of Jesus. So the sprinkling is a sacrificial And it's a cleansing imagery. And that's being used here on purpose to show the cleansing power of the blood to cover the sins of all people. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 9 or 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and what does he say? Look or behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we see, we read Paul and he writes this In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, he, John writes, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us all for sin. This is absolutely dumbfounding if you think about it. Jesus came and he offered forgiveness He offered forgiveness of sin through the shedding of his own blood. We should stand in awe at the fact that he offers us forgiveness. We should stand in reverence that we can be cleansed from our brokenness and from our sinful nature. But there are some who do not stand in awe. There are some that do not stand in reverence, but instead they stand in silent opposition. And we read in Isaiah 52.15 that kings will shut their mouths because of him, For they will see what had not been told to them, and they will understand what had not been heard. Jesus' willingness to obey, even in the circumstances of pain, in the circumstances of his own disfigurement, even causes those in position of power and rule and reign to stand silent. But they stand in silent opposition. See, this is true in the life of Jesus. Pilate refused to save Jesus' life. He washed his hands of it. He kept his mouth shut when when he, was, he could have released him. Likewise, Herod found no guilt in Jesus when he was presented before him. And instead of saving him, he stood silent and let the execution of Jesus come by. They stood confronted by the king of the universe and shut their mouths at the injustice done to him. And despite the fact that God said that his servant was going to be lifted up and greatly exalted, this was going to be done not through triumph of earthly standards, but through suffering and through the pain of rejection. Rejection by the very people that he came to save. Jesus' exaltation begins with his rejection. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was not like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. So we see here the rejection of the servant. This section starts with two questions. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The people speaking here are actually the people who accept the servant, the people who believe in the promised servant. But they are many who don't believe in the servant because he doesn't meet their expectations. Because he hasn't met their expectations, it's hard for them to believe that this man is the Savior that they had been waiting for, the Savior that they had been longing for. So as these believing Israelites are trying to convince the people, they're going, listen to what we see, listen to what we have heard. They are consistently being rejected by unbelief. The reality is is that Jesus is hard for many people to accept. So what do people do instead of following the true teachings of Jesus? They try to shape Jesus into their own image. They try to put Jesus in a box. They try to make Jesus one who fights for them and opposes the things that they oppose. They try to sanitize the God of the Bible. They try to make Jesus what he's not. Whether they limit him to a good teacher, a prophet, or a moral example, they don't recognize him as Lord of all. That's as much a problem today as it was 2,000 years ago. That's going to be a problem in the future. People don't know what to do with Jesus when confronted with the truth of who he is until the Lord opens their heart. But Jesus told us, right, that the way to follow him is narrow and that the path is straight. So to follow Jesus means to lay aside our fleshly desires and take up our cross and follow him. It means to offer your mind, your body, your soul as a living sacrifice for him. It means that you are daily giving everything that you are to him. That everything that you want to him. That you are aligning your life with him. It means that loving God with all that you have, with all that you are, and loving people as you love yourself. It means giving of ourselves, giving of our time, giving of our energy, giving of our talent and our finances to the mission of God. But we willingly do that because he extends to us salvation. We don't get it to earn anything from him. We get it because of the grace that we have received from him, the forgiveness, the mercy, and the love that we have received from him. Now, Jesus is a type of warrior, but he's not one that's going to establish an earthly kingdom, not as we expect it. We see this phrase, the arm of the Lord, and this should remind us of the the Israelites' redemption out of Egypt. They were drawn out of Egypt by the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord represents God's power to save, his power to deliver, his power to overcome and crush his enemies. With his power and with his majesty, he rules the earth, and he delivers his people from bondage. But not just earthly bondage. More importantly, the bondage of sin, the bondage of death. He frees us from that. We cannot forget that our God fights for us, that he fights for us. He establishes 
justice, and he crushes the head of his enemies. And the biggest enemy we face is that of sin and death. We don't have to fight or overcome because he's already done that. And we are invited to be a part of his kingdom because of the work that he's done. We're invited to be a part of his family because of the work that he's done. We're invited to be sons and daughters of the victorious, overcoming king. So because God is a warrior, and because he is a king, there was an expectation from his people that the Messiah's coming was going to look a certain way. That he was going to come in and establish a military and fight off the oppressors. That he was going to come and set them free and establish a new nation and a new kingdom. They thought that this Messiah was going to look a certain way. He was going to remind them of the kings of the past. Remember when Israel wanted a king in 1 Samuel chapter 9? They chose Saul to be their king. And why did they choose Saul to be their king? Because he looked kingly. Because he looked like a king. He was tall. Taller. A head taller than everybody else. He was an attractive man. He looked like a king. But he was a bad king. He was a bad king. So just because he looked like he fit the bill doesn't mean that he actually fit it, right? He doesn't, doesn't do what God had commanded him to. You see, God is more, in, more concerned with character than he is with physical appearance, appearance. In fact, when Jesus, when God chooses David, he writes, tells us in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. God is looking at the heart. Regardless, they wanted a savior that looked and acted like an earthly king that was going to establish a kingdom. But the reality is the Messiah, the one that they longed for, the one that they waited for, the one that they needed, didn't come to establish an earthly king. He didn't come to establish a worldly kingdom. In John chapter 18, verse 36, he tells us, he tells Pilate this, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have fought, so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. His kingdom is not localized. His kingdom is globalized. His kingdom is not of this world. It is of the spirit and of the truth. Jesus didn't come to set people free from worldly oppression. He didn't come to release captives from physical bondage. Jesus came to set us free from the bondage and oppression of sin and death. That is why he was despised and rejected by the people he came to save. He wasn't what they wanted. He didn't give them what they wanted, but he came to give them what they needed. However, he, they didn't want what he offered. He said, no. So there are, there, there are still those to this day who reject Jesus as Savior. There are still those who reject what they were longing for and waiting for and what they needed. I think back to John chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000. And as long as Jesus was giving them food, they wanted to follow after him. But the moment he started teaching them truth and he start, started teaching them hard teachings, they departed from him saying, this is too hard for us. We don't want to be a part of this. And how often do Christians today want Jesus when they, he can give them something, but don't want Jesus when he teaches them the truth. They want to be served by Jesus. They don't want to serve Jesus. They don't want to love him for who he is. They think they love him for what he can do. 
They treat him as if he's nothing more than some divine genie where we can approach him and he gives us what we want. Jesus was and he still is misunderstood by the world. He was misunderstood by those he came to serve. Jesus doesn't give us what what we want before he gives us what we need. And when he gives us what he wants, what we want, it's because he's changed our desires to want what he wants, to long after what he wants. We have to value Jesus for who he is. We have to acknowledge him for what he's done. We have to submit to him because he is the sovereign king. But because he is misunderstood, and he was misunderstood by the Israelites, because he didn't meet their expectation, he had to endure suffering. If he had come in like a king that they wanted, they would have praised him. But because he came in as the king that they needed, they made him suffer. And he's not just suffering because of his own suffering, but on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. I'm going to read that one more time, and I want you to really think about what's being said. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. I want the weight of that scripture to press on you. I want it to seep into your bones I want it to penetrate your mind. Jesus offered up his own life because of your rebellion, because of your disobedience, because of your sin, because of your iniquities, because of your rebellion against God. He took your punishment because of your wandering. And here's the thing that we tend to not think about. We aren't entitled to anything from God. God doesn't owe us anything. Never has and never will. God didn't have to provide a way for salvation. He didn't have to offer Jesus up as our substitute. He didn't have to do anything. He could have simply just snuffed out life. He could have collapsed existence. But because of his love, his mercy, and his grace towards his creation... It drove him to provide us a way out of the predicament we find ourselves in. You see, we can read about, we can talk about, and we can think about Jesus' death. But unfortunately, a lot of times, we belittle it. We can think about in our minds and our hearts that, oh, it wasn't too bad because three days later he rose again. And hallelujah, that happened. We minimize the suffering But can you for just one minute imagine the immense 
pain, and suffering that he had to endure. Not because of his own guilt, not because of his own shame, not because of his own rebellion, but because of yours, because of mine. As much as we like to downplay it, our sin cost something. And unfortunately, we don't take our sin as seriously as we should. You see, Romans 3.23 says this. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23 we read, For the wages of sin is death. We deserve sin. We deserve death. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. And though these things are true, there's also forgiveness given through Jesus' sacrifice. See, John 10.11 tells us that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Mark 10.45, Jesus tells us, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 John 2.2 says, For he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. John chapter 3 Verse 16 and 17 says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Romans 5.8, But God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hebrews 9.12, He entered the most holy place once and for all time not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So we can either believe in Jesus' atoning sacrifice, and we can trust that he takes away our sin and shame, or we can pay the wage ourselves. Those are the two roads. We can take the condemnation upon ourselves. We can spend eternity separated from God. We can endure the wrath of God. But Jesus in his love and in his compassion for his creation, took upon himself the sin of the world. He gave himself for those who would believe in him. And by believing in him, we find peace. The wounds that separate us from God are healed. The peace that we receive through Jesus' suffering is unlike anything that we could ever imagine. The word for peace in the Hebrew means that of being whole being made whole, being complete. Our trust and obedience in Jesus and in his sacrifice makes us whole. It restores us back to a right relationship with God. It brings us back to where we were meant to be, where we were whole in the presence of God. Jesus tells us in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. Jesus, when we follow after him, when we trust after him, gives us peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace between us and God. A peace between us and the world. The peace that comes from Jesus is everlasting. It's all-sustaining. It covers us as being a peace with the holy God that we have rebelled against. That we have fought against. That we have stood in opposition against. And this peace declares that the wrath of God was taken off of us and placed on Jesus on the cross. And the reason why that had to happen, again, is because of the consequences for disobedience, rebellion, and sin. 
We have all, like sheep, gone astray. We are like sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus is calling us back. He's calling us back. And he is able to call us back because he took on God's wrath. And he wants to give us his righteousness, that right standing with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Meaning that when you trust Jesus, he places on you his right standing with God. You didn't earn it, and you don't deserve it, but he gives it. Now I want you to think of it this way, okay? Because the idea of imputed righteousness can be a little fuzzy. But I'm going to give you an analogy. Now it's just an analogy, okay? So don't take it too far. But let's imagine God is watching humanity, and he sees humanity. And the way he views humanity is by the types of clothes that they wear. And each one of us outside of Christ is wearing a dirty, stained, and holy coat. It's just holes all over it. It's, it's icky, right? That is your nature. That is your sinfulness. That is your rebellion. So when God looks at you, he sees a filthy coat. No matter how much you try to clean it, another spot gets, gets dirty. No matter how much you try to patch it up, you tear another rip in it. No matter how much good you try to do, no matter how many times you try to go to church, no matter how many times you give money to the church, no matter how much you try to obey all the rules, no matter who your parents are, your coat is filthy. It'll continue to be filthy. It's still got holes in it, and you're still a mess. That's you. But then you place your trust in Jesus. Now Jesus has a coat, and his coat is completely distinct from everybody else's. It's perfect. It's white. It's glorious. It's the most beautiful coat you've ever seen. So when you trust in Jesus, Jesus takes your filthy, stained, holy rags, he takes them off of you, and he places on you his beautiful coat. So now when Jesus looks at you, or when God looks at you, he no longer sees the filthiness that you live in. He sees the righteousness of God. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Now you look like Jesus walking around the earth because Jesus has given you what you could never earn. So now you have right standing with God because of Jesus and what he's done. Not because of what you've done. Not because of how good you've been. Not because of anything that you can do, but you are made righteous because of Jesus's, Jesus because Jesus was punished for our sin, for our rebellion. And he took it upon himself, and he took that punishment, and he endured that pain. And he did that with dignity and silence. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 through 9, we read, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had not done any viol no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. I want us to think that this is intense suffering that Jesus faces. 
And he didn't endure some minor inconvenience or a little slap on the wrist. This type of suffering he encountered was severe. He was beaten and he was mocked and scorned. He was oppressed and afflicted. Before he was nailed to the cross, he was beaten with a whip. Now this whip that he was beaten with would have had sharp bones attached to the end. So at every strike, at every whip, his flesh would be ripped open, torn apart. He was made a spectacle for all to see. They mocked him. They twisted together thorns and shoved a crown of thorns on his head. Those thorns piercing his flesh, blood running into his eyes, like tears running down his face. I think sometimes we're too detached from the reality of the pain that Jesus endured on the cross. The image of Jesus is sanitized. Just think about it. Have you ever seen a crucifix? Now, I know that's not really part of our tradition, but have you ever seen a crucifix? Jesus just kind of looks a little uncomfortable, right? Like he's not supposed to be there. He looks like he's in a little bit of pain. He's got cloth covering his private areas, but there's not one drop of blood staining his skin. But the reality is, he would have looked like a bloody mess on that cross. He would have been covered in blood. His flesh ripped open. He would have been naked and exposed. Humiliation for all to see. He wouldn't have looked human. He wouldn't have been recognizable on that cross. And yet during that extreme suffering, during the beatings that he endured, he didn't cry out. He didn't open his mouth. He stood silent as he was accused. He stood silent as they beat him. He stood silent as they drove those nails into his wrist. He doesn't plead for his life. He doesn't plead for mercy. He does not wail at the injustices that are thrust upon him. He knows that the only way for humanity to be saved is for him to endure the cross, for him to be beaten, bloodied, and bruised. And it's interesting that Isaiah tells us that we are all like sheep, that we have wandered, that we have gone astray. We all willingly leave the fold of God, but yet like a sheep, Jesus took our punishment. Silent, quiet, alone, completely submitting to God's will. Now as he's hanging on the cross at his fingertips, he had the ability to call down legions from heaven. He had the authority to make all of this pain and suffering go away. But he held fast. He held on, and he died. And he died unjustly. He died unfairly, but he died willingly. He died so that we could be made whole, so that we could find peace, so that we could see the face of God, so that we could be reconciled. He died willingly. Have you ever thought about that? He died willingly. John 10, 18, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down on my own. And I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus has all the authority, and yet he chooses to die. Willingly. Doing the will of the Father. He is all about obedience to the will of the Father. Even obedience to the point of death. And it is because of his death and his willingness to die that he is exalted and greatly praised. And that was the plan. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was the plan to bring forth salvation. 
to bring forth his exaltation, to reveal the love of God to rebellious creatures. Verses 10 through 12. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So we see here that Jesus was exalted through his suffering. His exaltation came through suffering. We can think it a little bit hard and harsh to read that the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. There are those that would argue that this is akin to divine child abuse, that God crushing Jesus is taking pleasure in wickedness and evil. But if that's all we read, then it can sound a little harsh. But why was God pleased to crush Jesus? Because many will be justified. Because many will be saved. Many will be brought back into a right relationship with God. And again, if God the Father forced Jesus to endure the cross, that would have been different. But Jesus willingly goes to the cross. He is in unity with the Father's plan. Jesus willingly suffers and submits to the will of the Father so that many can be called sons and daughters. That's the beauty of the gospel message. That while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, while you lived in rebellion against God, while you were an enemy of God, Jesus willingly laid down his life so that you could be made new, so that you could know peace, so that you could be made whole, so that you would come to know the love, the grace, and the mercy of the Father so that you could be made into a right relationship with him. So he died so that you could live. He rose so that you could trust his promise. Jesus was greatly exalted and lifted high so that many would come to know him and to experience the grace of God. I'm about to read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. And I've read this scripture to you many times, but it's amazing to see the humiliation of Jesus. And it's one of the early hymns in the creeds of the church. It's important for us to know, to know this scripture and see how it fits into Isaiah's scripture so well. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 starts this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking up the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is exalted because of his obedience, because of his humility, because of his willingness to die for us. Now here's the reality. We have to do something with Jesus. Each one of us 
that have heard about Jesus has to do something with him. You can either accept him as Lord and Savior, and Savior, or you can reject him. You can either acknowledge him as king or ignore his sacrifice. If you don't accept him as Lord and Savior, you are rejecting him. You are telling him that his sacrifice doesn't mean anything to you. That you don't love, accept, or appreciate what he has done. And that's a choice that you can definitely make. But let me tell you this. There will be a day when, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And you will either bow as a son or daughter, or you will bow in rebellion and be cast out. You will be made to bow, or you will bow in submission. I want to see you give your life to Jesus. Now, it's not about saying a special prayer. It's not about being baptized. It's not about what you have done it's, or where you have been. It's not about how much you have failed or how much you have stumbled or how much of a mess you've made your life. Jesus was crushed for all your failures. He was bruised for all your sins. He died to make you new. He rose to prove that it was true. He did that for you. He did that for me. So I'm asking you, if you have not given your life to Jesus, to give it to him now so that when God looks down, he sees not your filthy rags, but the radiant glory of Jesus. Now we're about to enter into a time where we're going to do the Lord's Supper. And as we get ready, I go ahead and invite my ushers to go ahead and come down. But as we get ready to do the Lord's Supper, I want us to take a time to reflect on what Jesus has done, on who he is. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you revealed this to Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came. And that we can look back on the prophecy that you gave him and see the glory in Jesus. We're so grateful for that. Lord, as we enter into this time of the Lord's Supper, help us to reflect on what you've done, how you were pierced, how you were rejected, how you suffered and died because of my sin, because of my rebellion, because of my shame. And I pray that you would bless this time, not just as a remembrance of your sacrifice, but as a hope for the day that we get to be glorified with you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.